0: tell you what, the money they'll spend on consultants early on is a drop in the bucket compared to change orders and change of scope and misunderstandings that occur later on.
1: Welcome to CMC Live. This is the show where we discuss CMC regulations and guidances simplified through real-life experiences and risk-based advice, each episode, we speak with subject matter experts, as well as other leading industry authorities, with your host, Ed Narki.
2: Welcome, everyone, to the Tuesday, August 18th edition of CMC Live. I actually wanted to start by telling you guys something I learned yesterday on a, a long weekend vacation I took took kind of yesterday off, even though I checked my emails all day. The word kalkut, first of all, it's Finnish, if you were wondering, and I didn't turn my email off, Sorry. It's T-A-L-K-O-O-T. It actually means if something has to get done, let's do it together. So again, I was thinking about the eighth edition here and how we've actually done these. and I listened to quite a number of them. So whoever's joining us new today, maybe um, go back and listen to them. They're pretty exciting. And actually, I'm pretty impressed, actually. So let's do it all together. So something I learned from vacation, imagine that. So Brian, I want you to introduce our, our special guest today because you actually work closely with him. And I would like to sit back and listen and ask some very good questions. So, Brian? Today we have with us uh, Les Minzmeyer. Les comes
3: to us from a large molecule background, many, many years of experience. Les, I won't give that away. I'll let you do it. Les has been uh, instrumental in assisting clients through the pitfalls of of CMC. Part of that becomes finding CMOs and and vetting CMOs. So we thought it'd be a great opportunity to have somebody with Les's background come in and, and speak to his approach to doing that and and what may provide all of you out there uh, some insight as you go through that process yourself. So Les, welcome.
0: Thank you very much, Brian. So I guess the way to kick this thing off might be to fall back on the uniformity of the the issue, and that is it really doesn't matter if the company is uh, large, medium, small, or virtual. The path towards uh, getting a CMO on board is pretty much the same. For those that um, are fortunate enough to have prior experience, it's a little bit easier because they'll have a few names in mind and know a little bit of the things that went wrong in the prior time of of doing this so they can avoid those. But anyhow, but the path is pretty much the same. There's a couple of key things that uh, I think I want to bring out right away uh, for success, and that is that... Whether the company has a lot of experience or zero experience, especially if it's zero experience, there's an absolute requirement to get some SMEs on board that know this, can walk the walk, talk the talk, et cetera. And those typically are in two camps, the uh, CMC camp, because, uh, I mean, the reason you go to a CMO or CDMO is that you're trying to get a process moving forward. And the other is that uh, there also should be a view towards how did this uh, process uh, get uh, licensed and approved at some point. And so uh, regulatory consultant is also very key uh, right from the beginning. Those two consultants, or if they're uh, hired on board, that's great too. But they need to be uh, intimately involved in uh, in every aspect of this to be sure that The three big things, you know, quality, cost, and time, that uh, you can hit those as best you can on every point.
3: When you're talking about putting these SMEs, subject matter experts, onto a team, why? I I understand a CMO is supposed to be able to handle everything for you, right? I mean, that's the beauty of pushing back and letting the contract group do it. Why do we need those experts when you already have them at a CMO? I know we're in the selection process, but
0: really, what's the benefit of that? Right so it's usually a language problem to maybe oversimplify it the the terminology that's going to be used from CMO to CMO some of it's going to overlap but some of it's going to be very distinct and also there's the regulatory language uh, that needs to be in there so if you have if you're if you're trying to write a proposal or request for proposal rather and you have language in there like uh, verify a method instead of qualify or validate. Uh, those have different meanings that a regulatory person can easily uh, suss out. A CMC expert probably can too. But you know, when it comes down to getting the CMO on board and actually getting what you think you're going to get, you need to have that quality check as the process moves forward to avoid the surprises, and the, the surprise surprises always uh, costly, and it's costly in dollars, it's costly in time. Uh, hopefully, not costly in quality. But uh, that's the reason that those people really need to be on board. Maybe for some of the audience, the CMO, CMO debate.
2: You know, which which one is it? Maybe for me too. Can you define what CMOs are, CDMOs are? I, I know most folks do. However, for folks, you know, maybe from larger companies that don't work directly with them, can you tell us about the differences or, you know, what, what do they actually mean, the, the acronyms?
0: Sure. Yeah. So the uh, CMO is contract manufacturing organization. The D part brings development into it. And so if the organization also provides developmental services, then they'll usually refer to themselves as CDMO. And it sort of depends on you know, what is the uh, company looking for? What is the client looking for? You know, do they have a well-defined process? They need, just need somebody to, to manufacture stuff? Well, then, you know, the development portion probably is not very important. But like a lot of people that um, are just getting their company going, uh, there's a fair amount of development work that has to uh, go along with it. And so they'll be looking for a CDMO, somebody that can do development also. And that's development of process, development of methods, uh, and the qualifications that go along with that. And so, again, that harkens back to what I said initially, that you need to have SMEs in both of those camps to be sure that the work that's done in your development arena can apply and then be used to support uh, various uh, submission work So
3: the first step in the process is really writing, as you had mentioned, an RFP, request for proposal. So how much effort is really put in? What needs to go into that to make sure you get a bid that actually makes sense and you can base decisions on?
0: This is really one of the cases of garbage in, garbage out. So if you put the effort into getting a very detailed and exact request for proposal written, then the CMO or CDMO that is reviewing the request can determine if they have the resources to actually accomplish the tasks that you're looking for. That allows them to propose accordingly. In some cases, uh, they'll say, "Oh, you know what? Uh, uh, we don't actually do that uh, that type of product." Yeah. Uh, which is great if they can tell you that. It's it's uh, you know thins the the crowd of, of of CMOS you have to look through. On the other hand, they might come back and say, "You know, we do this and this and this, but we're not." You know, we don't do this, we outsource it and we can handle that for you. And that's fine too, but it's, but there's a need to know, you know, what are those capabilities? And so the more detailed you can make the request for proposals, the better the result, the resulting proposal is going to be when it comes back. So
3: it really is a collaborative effort with the client to get that information together.
0: Absolutely. Okay.
3: So now you've got a comprehensive RFP. You understand the product to the degree of the information you've been provided to, to generate the RFP? What is your initial search criteria? How do you know from the 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 hundreds of possible vendors out there how you want to narrow this down? Because I'm sure if you hand a list of 50 to a client, it's really not much worth the paper it's printed on. And you said something early, is is you base it on on past experience. I'm curious as to why people only remember the bad experiences and really don't highlight the good ones very often. But what criteria do you do you have? when you select that initial group? Because obviously it gets pared down, but how do you match that up for that initial search?
0: A lot of the selection does come down to networking and word of mouth uh, from other uh, people working in the area. The nice thing about having a good network is that you can certainly weed out the ones that you don't want to be involved. Uh, So that's part of the criteria. Usually, if you need to cast a broader net, you know maybe you've only come up with a couple of uh, couple of recommendations from others, then you know the internet is a great source to at least get some information on the various companies. Beyond that, looking at some of the regulatory history of the companies uh, is also uh, pretty important. If you've uh, you know if you look somebody up and you find that they've had, lots of audit problems then that's probably not someplace you want to go to yeah I don't know if that's a maybe not a complete answer to to your question but um, you know most of us have most of us know half a dozen or a dozen companies that we've had some interaction with and when you get into a, um, a group have uh, a Dsi you know we've got a lot of other consultants that know another six or a dozen um, so there's a, a great way to to kind of bring some additional names in for consideration.
2: Yeah, that was a, that was actually my next question. So I think people should ask friends, you know, colleagues, ex colleagues, others in the industry, what their experiences have been, right? Because we don't, we haven't worked with everyone individually. That is, there's some that actually show amazingly. You know, they I used to work at a manufacturing facility and they had the team to walk everyone around the sales team basically, and everything looked great, right? but when it comes time to go they can't do it. So what do you what do you think about asking friends, asking colleagues, you know, especially if you're identifying one in particular and then I have a follow-on question.
0: Okay, well, to the first part of that question, getting information from uh, friends and colleagues, networking that way, I think that's a, a great way to as I said rule out the ones you definitely don't want. The other part of what you were saying is that frequently it is the salesperson, the BD person that's walking you around the facility and that's not necessarily going to be a a great source of information. Uh, They're going to be very careful about showing you the the stuff that works, and you're not going to really know uh, how things work on a day-to-day basis. Uh, That comes later on when you've narrowed the search, and we can maybe touch on that right now and maybe talk more later. But uh, once you've narrowed it down to, uh, you know, you want at least two or three, uh, that look like they can do the job, then you need to actually get into the facility and see what's there and talk to some of the people that actually perform the work. That's um, important for a couple of reasons. One is that if you've audited a few of these places like I have, you can pick out the uh, the good from the bad fairly quickly. And uh, getting to chat with some of the folks that are performing the work also, uh, you know, they have to pass the BS test. And that's also very helpful. But the uh, the other thing that's useful in doing that is that uh, ultimately, uh, when you sign a contract, you got to work collaboratively with the CMO and with the people in the CMO. And so uh, meeting people face to face, understanding who they are, and starting to develop that rapport uh, is going to play uh, many many benefits uh, or payback and many benefits for. Uh, not only the initial search, but also ultimately when you uh, begin to work with them.
3: So, to take a, a step back, so we've we've gone through the RFP. When we provide that RFP, we have a CDA in place, of course.
0: Yeah, yeah, because in the in the request, you're, there's going to be there has to be a certain amount of uh, of confidential information in order for the CMO to to properly evaluate if they can do the work. So, a CDA is the first thing you you got to get in place with these guys.
3: So then the CDA is then in place with the candidates you have, and then the RFP is distributed. How important is the timing of everything that happens beyond that? Let's say, for example, how important is the timing, uh, the timeliness of the correspondence way into your decision on going with that CMO? Now you've got the RFP out distributed, the clock starts. How do you typically manage that?
0: Well, if you uh, if you get a timely response, that tells you uh, really some great things about the company that they are going to be responsive. You know, obviously they're looking for work, so that's a that's a good sign that uh, that they they're hungry. They want to want to work with you. Uh, as far as managing it goes, uh, generally you let them know. You know that um, we have a deadline of X, and uh, all you know proposals we receive by that deadline will get consideration. And if you miss it, then you won't. That allows them to, uh, you know, get something in in place and get it in front of you. Every company wants everything, you know, yesterday. And so that's also part of the quagmire. You have to go through to to get uh, to a point. Uh, Younger companies uh, without a lot of experience are going to say, you know, well, we'll send this on Monday and we'll get responses on Friday. Well, that's not very realistic. For a uh, RFP to be properly evaluated it can't just come back from the bd folks because they'll not necessarily know all the ins and outs of the capabilities maybe that's not fair to say but uh, it happens so they need to get input from the uh, from the folks that are going to be performing parts of the uh, proposal so in order to do that it's got it's got to make its rounds to the uh, quality organization the uh, manufacturing uh, organization uh, and anybody else that the RFP touches, they've got to have some input on it. So that takes time. Every company is busy. I mean, that's that's just the way this this uh, business is. And so to get time uh, to have a, a RFP distributed and make its rounds and get comments back, uh, it's a it's a time-consuming uh, endeavor. So you know, the deadline to receive stuff back, you know, you need to be a little bit patient not it's not a week uh, but it's probably not more than a month preferably less uh, but if you give them a month and they come back in you know 10 days that's a pretty good sign that they're you know they're they're taking your proposal ser- or your request seriously if it, if they come back at the end of the game then you know well maybe they're too busy to really perform for you so that gives you a little bit of uh, of insight as as well one other thing that uh, that happens which is uh, I'll bring it up now, but it's uh, proposals. Uh, if you, if you get enough proposals, let's say you get a half a dozen coming in, and that's kind of like a minimum. You'd want to at least have a half a dozen to look at. What I've seen a lot of times is that uh, uh, proposal one through five will be X, and proposal six will be two X, and it tells you a lot. It it's, it it uh, it tells you that either they don't really want to do this, but they're going to put a bid in. For whatever reason probably some internal political reason but those can be essentially discounted because uh, I, nobody's going to consider uh, when it's you know time and cost and uh, nobody's going to consider a 2x proposal against a, a 1x so i've seen those don't know exactly the reasons for them but uh, i have seen it be because they
2: don't really want to work that's an interesting thing you just said about half a dozen at minimum um I was never shopping for CMOs. I worked at them. And then I, you know, as a regulatory person, I, you know, took data from them and judged it and used it or whatever. But Brian, actually, I have a question for you that. So I was taught by somebody that says a minimum of three, you know, in a high, middle, middle and low. And maybe it was just because of the time involved and stuff like that. Right. Do you have any thoughts on that number? Minimum number? Have you ever dealt with more than six, less than six? Sometimes only one vendor, of course, right? If there's only two people can make it in the world limits you, but I'd like to hear.
3: Yeah, no, that's a good question. In my experience, it really, it depends on the product. If it's a cytotoxic, it narrows the field. If it's, if there's certain nuances with your product that make it special. And yes, I realize everyone knows their product is special, but, but to manufacture, it may be, and it narrows that field. Typically we try to strive for that that half dozen number. It does a couple of things. It shows one, that the request for proposal that went out was understood the same way consistently. If, if the numbers that come back match, if the cost is, is similar, but really to do any more than that, it's really work not real well spent because you're not going to actively pursue all six to the very end of negotiation. Another thing is understanding actually your client's priority. If cost is their main driver, well, then now you're looking at only a portion of that list. You will have a, a you know a high, low, and a midpoint, but also really how you look at those bids. Sometimes costs are not exactly very clearly put in these proposals, and you have to look at it. I know a few CMOs off the top of my head that are very big on change of scope, and that is a price increase. And they will quote you the minimum, assuming everything is right in the world, and then just continue to hit you with change of scope. So I know... As much detail as you can put in it without slowing down the bidding process into that RFP, the better. Air your laundry. If it's if it's a difficult product to manufacture, if there are very complicated methods, have that in there so there's no surprises. But I would say, to answer your question, anywhere from four to six is, is a good number, and then you pare it down to two.
2: Yeah, you guys are great. You know how much I learn from these things every time we do it? A lot. So, But that's, that's a great point. And... It kind of just goes to show like, you know, as far as garbage in garbage out, like, I guess my question is, you know, it seems like you have to kind of pay attention to what you're asking for almost to frame what you want to get back because, you know, you can get a generic something like Brian mentioned that cost overrides could come in, you know, you never even thinking about them until you get burned once or twice. So, you know, in your experiences, is that I guess that's something you you know, you have to have someone that's kind of used to getting bids. I know we work with a lot of folks that maybe do it once in their career you know, in the role that they're in and they move on. So can you talk to maybe some of that, you know, as far as, you know, some of the things that you've learned over the years, maybe some of the reading the tarot cards, I would say, you know, you look at a proposal and, you know, some things that you see that are are alarming or that may cause, you know, problems later.
0: Right. So the proposals that are returned, Uh, from the companies are never one template companies will respond with their proposal in a variety of means. They'll, they'll uh, have a word document that's lots of words. they'll have an Excel spreadsheet that's got things very abbreviated with a cost associated with it. So this is actually another point where it's important to, to have your uh, CMC and your regulatory person uh, involved because the first thing you need to do when comparing these is to get them on the same template. So that uh, requires um, a lot of effort actually, when you're trying to, trying to, uh, I mean, as an engineer, I love an Excel spreadsheet. And so I try to take that Word document and get it into Excel so that I can do a one-on-one comparison. I can look at all the deliverables that were asked for in the request and I can compare that against what did the company say uh, they could do for that deliverable? What was the cost they had associated with that? And so that's that's uh, one of the things. Um, the lingo that companies will use from one to the next isn't uh, always the same. And if you're looking at CMOs that are XUS, us you have a, an additional problem with uh, English not necessarily being a first language. And so now you've got You've got to sort through you know what did they mean when they said uh, you know full development. <laughs> a lot has to be deciphered in that. And the back and forth has to begin right there. Um, so having a contact person at each of the CMOs and having a, a SME that understands what they're asking and what they're going to receive is very important. So that ha- there's a lot of communication back and forth with each of these CMOs in that process to make sure that everything is understood properly. Uh, I mentioned earlier the, uh, you know, verification, qualification, validation, and that is uh, is pretty key uh, to make sure that that's well understood. You don't want to be midway through your process and and think that you were gonna get validation activity when in fact they're just, you know, verifying a few uh, compendial methods. So that's that needs to be sorted out.
3: I think the term development is one that it's a a rather broad term. And I think when a CMO says, I support development, immediately your attention turns to, to how? Have you done it before? Do you have a pilot scale? Do you, you know, show me the capabilities of your development lab? I think that's where, to your point earlier, Les, having a qualified subject matter expert looking at the bids, there may be follow-up questions based on what they propose to you. So that, I think, is the benefit to the point you raised earlier about putting that team together with the endpoint in mind to make sure the CMO that you then sign with and trust for further down the road has been fully vetted.
0: Right. Yeah. Just to put a, another point on that, that um, companies are, especially the startup companies, you know, very dollar conscious, and it's good that they are. Who, who doesn't want a good deal? They may be a little reluctant to spend consultant money on that early stage. But I tell you what, the money they'll spend on consultants early on is a drop in the bucket compared to change orders and change of scope and misunderstandings that occur later on. There needs to be built into the um, proposal a contingency, too. So as long as the proposal appears to be well done, well proposed, and it passes muster with the CMC and the regulatory, then I'm comfortable usually telling the client that add 25% for the stuff that you didn't think about, don't know about, and it's gonna pop up. That number is um, pretty good, but it can be a heck of a lot more than that if if the, if the proposal isn't well vetted. It's, it's easy for that one uh, that X to become you know 50%, 75% more. With change orders and repeats of things that uh, you know went awry.
2: Yeah, this is kind of uncanny because I I took some wrote some questions down. and Somehow you must have received them less because you've answered all three <laughs> so far. And I, there's there's actually one I'm waiting for you to answer. And if you do it, you're going to be four for four. But I I want to go back. You talked about the language barrier. I guess you know how that should be considered. You know most European CMOs have PMs who speak. You know probably. Really great English, actually, from everyone I met. Most of the, you know, legit ones have that. Asian, maybe not so much. You know, Could that be a, an issue that comes up as far as um, the language? Uh, I know you mentioned it, but is that something that you would really do want to consider when you're selecting a CMO?
0: Well, not language so much. We can talk about that in a second. But uh, the thing that jumped out at me when you're asking this question is how difficult is it going to be to communicate and collaborate Uh, with the CMO that you choose. Uh, If you're in the U.S. and you're looking at Europe, you got at least six hours time difference. That's not insurmountable, but it does pose some additional potential delays by the time you receive information, get it through the network locally, and then try to get back. Usually a day is lost uh, before you can uh, get things to happen. If you're looking at, at a CMO that's, you know, 10, 11, 12 hours time difference, that becomes very problematic. Somebody's got to uh, get up very early or stay up very late in order to keep that communication going. And the collaboration with these uh, companies is paramount in getting the result that you want uh, at the cost and time that you that you are hoping for. Uh, the la- Let's talk about the language a little bit. That's what you actually asked. Although the BD and the uh, PMs in these uh, companies uh, speak pretty good English. Uh, a couple of things I've found: one is that um, you may be their only English-speaking client, and if that's the case, then their English kind of comes and goes. As you know, <laughs> in Europe they have a uh, hiatus for vacation uh, into the summer, and uh, I've noticed when uh, when we get back on the on the communication that. Um, you know, their English kind of needs to be uh, sharpened up again. So that's not a big deal, but you have to be listening really carefully uh, to not mistake what's being said. The other uh, thing I wanted to talk about a little bit is uh, is culture. We've had some experiences where things were promised because it's sort of saving face to promise, uh, but then they don't get delivered and so you also have to be kind of aware of, uh, you know, if you're, going to be, if you're going to be asking for something to be delivered, make sure that it's, it's not an ask that is going to take the person out of their ability to deliver it. So I don't know how to, how to describe that any closer, I don't think.
2: Yeah. And it's interesting because the other question was literally less, ask less about time zones and if they become a hassle. You know, East Coast to Europe is pretty easy. California gets a little harder. Asia, we've all had a call. So, you know, you, you just mentioned it, of course, right? Time zones. And I, I kind of want it's to, a, it's a bland question. So I wanted to kind of expand it for where we're at, you know, in, in modern times here. COVID-19, you know, travel and those things they seem to have changed. So one thing I'll ask as addition now, you know. How far are you willing to travel to visit your CMOs? And second part of that and piece of it is, are you okay never visiting it?
0: Well, that's a heck of a question. In normal times, I would insist that a visit happen because, uh, as I said earlier, you got to get in there to to see uh, what the facility really is capable of delivering and what the people are capable of delivering and to form that uh, relationship. With COVID, that has become next to impossible. The best we can, we can do is to rely on our network and uh, hope that we, we get uh, good advice uh, from our colleagues. One thing that, uh, that we've tried is, uh, is virtual auditing. You know, I need, I need to see more of that to see how, how effective that can be. Uh, you can tell a lot about a, an organization if they'll let you take a look at their regulatory history, for instance, and look at their uh, maintenance history. Those are two real key things, and also the deviations. If you find that there's lots and lots of deviations associated with environmental problems, well, you probably don't want to put your biologic into a facility that's uh, having mold and bacterial hits uh, right and left. If you are looking at, uh, uh, again, at deviations that have maintenance issues, well, That's really a a heck of a smoking gun, too, that suggests maybe the company is scrimping on keeping equipment properly maintained. That's going to bite you big time if you've got a few hundred thousand dollar worth of run going and their equipment breaks down. There better be provision in the contract about who's going to be responsible for that. So those are things that can happen. You can can sort out some of those, um, I guess, problem areas if you can get access to some of the documentation in those facilities. I mentioned regulatory uh, audits and stuff too. That's that's always a good place to look uh, just to, um, you know, whether you're weeding them out at the beginning or, or if you're, you know, now having to make a decision based on not being able to go to the facility. With, you know, webcasts and stuff, you've got some opportunity to interface it's not, it's not being there, but it's, uh, it's at least something. Do
3: you encourage the team that's involved in the CMO selection process to also be involved in the product transfer process? Or really are these two completely separate functions and you could just turnkey, somebody else jump in and transfer the
0: product? Well, there's uh, handoffs that can happen. So it's not impossible to uh, move from you know, person A to B, uh, as long as they have a you know similar skill set, for continuity though, if you can maintain the same uh, relationship with the same uh, SMEs from start to finish, um, you're going to have a lot less surprises. You know, they will have vetted the proposal in the first place. Uh, they'll be there for the uh, the tech transfer, the kickoff, probably be there for the. Um, uh, you know, for uh, at least some of the work uh, that gets done. So, my my recommendation would be to uh, you know keep those people in place so that you don't have you know a, a different opinion. Yeah, I guess I, that's that's I, I have <laughs> I guess I have some uh, some sores uh, from uh, people that uh, don't necessarily they might have the same skill set but they'll have a different approach to uh, to how they're interpreting. Uh, maybe what they're seeing, and uh, that can be a real problem if uh, if a company's you know running down the path, thinking they've got everything covered, and then you got somebody come in that uh, you know came from a little different place, and it, it can cause you costs, and it costs time, it costs money uh, potentially, and and uh, and you have to build a, a new relationship you know then with people you're interacting with too, so.
3: That's a friendly way to that's a very friendly way to put that. <laughs> but I'd like to back up a bit, if if I may, can you give a little bit of an well, an overview of your experience in industry? And, and, you know, we just we spent all this time talking about CMO, CDMO selection, and based on your experience, could you perhaps maybe talk a little bit about where you've been and, and what you've done?
0: Sure. So um, uh, I mentioned uh, everything from large, medium, small, and startup uh, uh, companies. I've worked for all of those. I've also been involved with um, auditing as well as uh, CMO selection, and I was the uh, VP of uh, manufacturing at two CMOS. And so um, those places, I was, you know, I was on the proposal side of the equation. And so I can tell you, uh, it, you know, it's, it has to make the rounds uh, in order to be a good proposal. And the BD people always promise more than <laughs> more than you can uh, just, you know, fall off your chair and deliver. It's uh, sometimes a very creative process to figure out how you're going to, you know, be able to get the job done for the client. But anyway, it's, it's, it's fun. So, yeah, so I've been involved with uh, proposal writing, proposal reviewing, requests for proposals. I've been person in the plant and a couple of CMOs uh, for different clients and um, kind of seen it done. I can hear
2: it as well, you know, working in the manufacturing facility, you know, when you go over and become part of a small biotech or, you know, maybe a, a larger company that's using CMOs, you know, you definitely have a different view versus if you were just at that, you know, biotech right out of school or right out of another, you know, piece not working in manufacturing, you definitely see it from both ways. So I think it's very helpful. And um, it sounds like you have great, um, great experiences in, in those things. So I wanted to recap, though, I think I there was a couple things that I forgot about, actually. Um, so we talked about, you know, observations by regulatory agencies, a history, that's, that's a, certainly a, a large portion of selecting them, we didn't get into some of the quality systems, and there's a, that's more of a QA, you know, topic. I think um, personal interaction. You know, we we kind of hit on a few things here, uh, especially in these new new times, right? Um, getting there and actually being there in person, examining the facilities. That's kind of part and parcel the same thing. And um, you know, the technology capacity. It really depends on your product. Uh, there's two types of CMOS in my mind. The the ones that make the active the API. Manufacturers, and I—that's where I came from. Very low margins in most cases. Um, Biologics, not so much, but the drug product is is very different. I think, in my mind, just because they they do different thing there. One thing that we didn't talk about, and I, I, you know, open this up to Brian and maybe Miranda. Maybe you've heard people talk about this, you know, in just some of our lead calls over the years. Capacity. You know, there there's different there's different vendors, different CMOs for different purposes. And one may be suited well for one type of company at a different a certain stage, and it may be totally the wrong fit for another one. Doesn't mean they're bad. Can you talk about capacity? And in the framework of there's very large CROs out there that market all over the place and you know people go by the name. And there's small ones, you know, that that might actually be more accommodating for you know smaller emerging biotech. However, take the good with the bad, you know, you have to look at everything. So Les, maybe you can start. Can you talk about maybe capacity and and sense of selecting a CMO and how that that might work or things to look for?
0: Sure. So um, the capacity part of it generally will sort itself out when you're in the request for proposal stage. If you have a uh, a product that's always going to be a uh, thousand liter product, and that's the uh, proposed commercial batch size based on some, usually some uh, initial marketing uh, study, A outfit that does 20,000 liter, and that's kind of what they do, isn't going to propose. So they're going to sort of (laughs) sort themselves out of the the equation. Capacity actually means a couple of different things to me. Uh, One is the equipment sizing, uh, which I think is where you're uh, coming from right now. But the other is the uh, capacity of the facility uh, to actually uh, get the work done. Uh, Most CMOs want to be around 70 to 80% at capacity and a lot of them struggled uh, to be there.
2: What I was thinking as far as capacity, I was thinking like in case in case of an upset in manufacturing, for example, that happens frequently, right? Mm-hmm. Your manufacturing date could get postponed and that could mean a couple different things. It, it's bad if you're making it for a specific time period to dose, you know, a, a study, run a trial, but really it's more so if it's a milestone, you know, you're, you're planning a validation or you're planning for a launch or when you get approval, you know, like seasonal distribution, if you're running short on material. So if you miss the date, you know, in that instance, the latter part, you, you lose market share, you lose money, right? But these things happen during development, too, as we all know, for different reasons. So that, that's that's the question, I guess, about the capacity. I've worked at one large uh, CMO, name shall go unnamed, but you can find it on my LinkedIn page they were just always at a hundred percent and when things happen, you know, people got pushed aside, small companies weren't able to, you know, that were delayed and those things like that. That's the, ter- the terms I was talking about when you're looking into a, a facility, you know, should you be scared that they're only at half capacity? Does that send a message that they do a good, bad job maybe, or is it, is it just that they actually know how to plan better and they're probably more appropriate?
0: Okay. I think I understand your question better now. So, um, I guess I'll address it in a couple of ways. A CMO may have excess capacity because they're newcomers into the field. Some companies actually uh, you know, think it's a good idea to create that capability at some point of, of the company. If that's the case, then it does take a while to build up a client base. Also, as products move in and out, uh, sometimes capacity uh, arrives because some larger Volume product maybe has gone off of patent and it's you know not going to be produced in the same uh, same kind of quantity. So that could uh, cause extra capacity uh, to be available. As far as the uh, you know 100% at 100% capacity, I tell you when stuff like that uh, when you have a problem, sometimes they'll have a client that's. that uh, has a pretty large inventory. And so they can approach that client and say, hey, you know, we had we had you scheduled for November, but, uh, you know, how about if we move you to January? Does that cause a problem? And so it kind of comes down to what I was saying before about relationship uh, with the CMO. If you have a good relationship and things happen, things will happen, they will probably be more likely to work with you to resolve those uh if you have a good relationship if you don't then they would be maybe less inclined to go to one of their established clients and ask them to move um, so it can be a problem but um you know most of the most of the cmos um they're not working at 100 percent capacity uh, they, they've got like i said if they can get 70 or 80 they're you know they're pretty happy, so I've only seen that in in one uh, one instance where we had to go and be very you know <laughs> on our knees asking if you know can we uh, get into this time slot somehow and right yeah okay so just another thing to consider
2: I, I would say uh, Miranda I any questions from from your angle I, I know you asked me these questions about the film selections and I I can't really tell you I make stuff up maybe sometimes but. Any inquiries that you've heard or any questions that you might just have from listening to to us today?
4: Most of them have been answered, but a lot of the things that um, come to us from prospective clients is they'll say, Is this CMO good? And there can be times where we'll be on a call and we'll be like, ah, I might need a little bit more information. So I guess it depends on what the CMO is looking for, but I've had prospective clients come to me and tell me what CMO they're going to be using under CDA. And we've asked those prospective clients if they've had multiple bids and requests for proposals. And they said, no, this is a very good CMO. We don't need one. What would be your advice to somebody in that predicament where maybe they have a consultant, maybe somebody onboarded into the company is very comfortable with a particular cmo what do they lose for not looking elsewhere
2: and left before you answer if i can add on to that because that's a good question this is part of it but i think you know and maybe second half of video you know i see people who just don't know about the cmos and they put too much emphasis on a name right there's a very large there's a couple very large api and drug product folks out there that say they can do everything and they'll tell you this right so Second part of the question, I guess, is the name: is do you know should you put a lot of emphasis into a name, or is that does that lead you down the wrong road?
0: Uh, yes, <laughs> indeed, there are a lot of uh, good CMOs out there, and, and uh, they've got uh, you know their their name brand is is fairly well known. There's not necessarily anything wrong with going uh, in that direction, but. What I was um, kind of began this with is that the startup companies, especially, they're looking for, you know, time and cost, primarily qualities in there too. But going with the name brand company is not necessarily going to get them either time or cost. It's important to have those other CMOs vetted as well uh, through the RFP process to see where the value lies, uh, being able to work with, <laughs> I kept, kept coming back to this, that uh, being able to work with the uh, CMO is, is paramount to success. And so, um, you know, it's not that you can't work with a large CMO, you certainly can, but if you're a bigger part of the CMO's business, you're gonna get a little bit more attention than, uh, than you may if you're if you're going with a with a uh, larger CMO. So no, don't. Uh, I mean, the short answer is you, you got to go through the uh, the RFP process in order to be sure that you're uh, getting the best value. It's um, money is always going to be a problem, uh, and so to to shortcut that process is uh, you know really setting setting yourself up for some some heartache down the road.
2: Well, I assume and presume we could talk for a couple more hours. I, I'm, I realize how naive I am about CMO selections. It's been a while since I worked on them, but I, I think this was a great start. Les, any any other questions right now, Miranda?
4: No, but I look forward to having you back on a future podcast about biologics.
2: Les, yes, that's, that's a good point. And for folks that can't see the screen here, we have a name for uh, Les. It's called, I have to go back to the screen here and see it actually. He calls himself the Adventurous Engineer, and there's a space. It's not all one word. And that's a great title. It kind of reminds me now of Les. But we have a new name for you at DSI. And it, and it's I'm going to start calling you this, so prepare yourself. Your name is now Super Less. Okay, Super Les. <laughs> it flows perfectly, like Super Dave. Super Dave? <laughs> I can hear you now. Last name, I'm going to just think Super Less. So once again, thanks a lot, Les Meyer perfect, great, great story here. I think this will benefit folks. And um, we look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. You're very welcome.
4: On our next episode of CMC Live, join us as we speak to Dave Adams, our senior drug substance consultant. He has over 30 years experience in the pharmaceutical manufacturing and process development. Prior to joining DSI, Dave has served as a production team leader for Lanza and senior process engineer at johnson Matthey. I look forward to hearing more from Dave next week.
1: Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which include a summary, timestamps, and any links mentioned in this episode, please visit dsinformatics.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find the information from this episode and any past episodes. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash CMC Live. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.